Well, we're continuing on in the book of Mark, so please do have that passage open in front of you, and also your sermon outline, the yellow-coloured paper, will be useful to you as well. Let's pray again. God, our Father, we pray that as we've just read in Isaiah 66, that you would make us humble, submissive in spirit before you, that you would make us people who tremble at your word, and that you would look favorably upon us now as we open it up and think about it further. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, seeing as it's the beginning of the new year, I feel like I have to talk about the topic of New Year's resolutions. And I feel like I have to, I just have to, talk about failed New Year's resolutions. Hands up if you have already failed a New Year's resolution. We've got one bold person here. That's good. Well, let me tell you about my repeatedly failed New Year's resolution. A few years ago, I think it was the beginning of 2014, I decided that my New Year's resolution was that I was going to learn how to make pretzels. Not those tiny little pathetic pretzels that come in a packet, but these big, crispy but soft, warm, buttery, salty, tasty German pretzels. They are the greatest invention ever, aren't they? I love pretzels, and so I wanted to be able to know how to make them so I could pull them out of the oven and consume them warm and hot from the oven. Now, can you guess, have I ever gotten around to making pretzels? No. Two years later, and no pretzels have been attempted. I did find a quick recipe online that looked pretty good. I even looked in the cupboard to see if we had the ingredients, and we did, and then I did nothing about it. Nothing at all. No pretzels to show after two years. Now, making pretzels is not a very significant New Year's resolution, but it's not a very difficult one either. But perhaps, hopefully, by the end of thinking about these words of Jesus, these challenging words of Jesus, we will come up with a better New Year's resolution. But before we get to this challenging passage, we need to remember where we are in the story so far. And if you remember last week, or if you read it at home, you'll remember that the disciples were arguing. They were arguing who out of them was the greatest. Maybe they were arguing about who was Jesus' favorite, or who was the most impressive speaker, or the most godly. Maybe they were arguing about who cast out the most demons, or healed the most people. Who knows? But what we do know is Jesus' response. Have a look again at Mark chapter 9, verse 35. He says, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus redefines greatness for his disciples. He says that true greatness is not being first, it is making yourself last. True greatness is being the servant of all other people and making them more important than yourself in your attitude and in your actions. And then to illustrate this, Jesus gets a little child and has him stand in the middle of the room and says, when you welcome and love and serve people with small status in the eyes of the world, like this child, that is true greatness. But then in our passage today, we get more of Jesus' teaching about true greatness and what it looks like to be this humble servant of all. 
Now, all of this welcoming talk and talk of receiving and loving seems to cause something to pop up in one of the disciples' minds. John, one of Jesus' inner circles of disciples, pipes up and he shows that he and all the other disciples yet again fail to understand Jesus. They fail to be truly great. So have a look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. As the disciples travelled with Jesus, there were countless people in need, countless demons to be cast out, people to be healed of their illnesses. And Jesus had commissioned these 12 men to do that. But something else is going on here. There seems to be someone other than the twelve. This other man who they don't know, he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so the disciples get suspicious. But notice John doesn't say he was trying to cast out demons. It just says that he was. This man is actually casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And what do his disciples do? They tell him to stop. Here is someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus, freeing people from the grip of Satan, releasing them from the pain and torment they're in, and the disciples want to do what? Tell him to stop. Why? Because John says he wasn't following us. Not he wasn't following you, Jesus, he wasn't following us. This man isn't one of us. He's not one of the special 12 like we are. Because he's not special like us, we told him to stop. Can't they see that this is basically the opposite to what Jesus has just been saying? Welcome any brother or sister in Christ. Welcome and serve even the little ones in the kingdom, those who are seemingly insignificant. But here the disciples fail the test. They see themselves as better than this man and they treat him as a second-class citizen, an outsider. Isn't this a powerful example of how legalism and pride in us can so easily cause us to deny the gospel? How easily can we be inflated with pride and with privilege because we think we're special We're God's children, or we do this ministry, or we have this job. And so we think we're better than others, and we treat them as second-class citizens. I think one of the best ways you can tell the health of a church is by how people treat each other, isn't it? And particularly how people treat someone like this man, someone they don't know, someone on the outer, someone who might be little in faith. Maybe there are new Christians, or perhaps they're someone who suffers or struggles significantly, or maybe they even have a disability. How we view and treat those people who are little in the eyes of the world or who are different to us, the way we treat them shows if we have understood what Jesus is saying here, that true greatness is serving all. Clearly the disciples didn't know, didn't understand this when they told this man off. And Jesus, he picks up on it straight away. Nothing slips by Jesus, does it? So he comes straight out with it in verse 39. 
don't stop him. Don't stop this man. And then Jesus gives a few reasons why. First of all, in verse 39, he says, someone who is genuinely performing miracles in my name, that person can't then go and speak evil of Jesus, can they? No, they can't. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. No one, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. And no one can say Jesus is cursed and mean it if they really do have the Spirit of God in them. It's similar with this situation. If this man really is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, he's not going to call Jesus evil in the next breath. So the disciples should not have pushed this man out and told him to be silent. Jesus goes on and he gives us another reason in verse 40. He gives us a proverb. Have a look at it. He says, For whoever is not against us is for us. Now I don't know about you, but when I read those words, my mind quickly goes to another proverb that Jesus says, which sounds really similar, but is basically saying the opposite. I've given it to you on your outline. Have a look. It's in Matthew and Luke. Jesus says, anyone who's not with me is against me. It sounds like the opposite of what he says here in Mark, doesn't it? But there's a little difference. In Mark, Jesus says, us. And in Matthew and Luke, Jesus says, me. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus is talking about individual response to him. He's saying, you can't sit on the fence when it comes to me. You have to make up your mind. Are you for me? Do you listen to me? Do you obey me? Do you want to follow me and accept my teaching? Because if not, you're against me. You're rejecting me. So make up your mind. But in Mark, Jesus is talking about us. He's talking about him and his disciples. And he's talking about their mission efforts. He's saying, if, these, if someone is not working against you in your mission efforts, in telling people the gospel then don't reject them as evil. Hey, if they're not actively working against us, then we can assume that they're for us, especially if they're speaking in the name of Jesus. This man is working in the name of Jesus, so you shouldn't have pushed him out and cut him out because of your pride and your position. I think one of the clearest examples of this is the road. When you're on the road and there's someone behind you who thinks for whatever reason, and this might be you, that you are somehow against them, simply by being in front of them. They, have a per- they think you have a personal vendetta to slow them down and to make you late. Maybe feelings of rage are rising within you right now. My response is, no, no, I'm not working against you. I'm just sharing the road with you. We're just sharing the same space. It's okay. Calm down. But that's not how people see things, is it? Well, this is similar. Jesus says that this man, he's not against us. He's for us. And it reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians, where he says, some people preach Christ in order to harm me. But I don't care, because Christ is being preached. Even though they are against me, Paul says, they're still preaching Christ, so they're not against him. So Jesus shows his disciples yet again, don't get it. Greatness in the kingdom is being the servant of all, and this is not how they've treated this man. 
And so Jesus then goes on to speak more about this and say how they should have treated him and how they should not treat him. So have a look at verse 41. This is one of those great verses of the Bible where Jesus says that even the most simple act of service, giving someone a cup of water because they are a fellow Christian, even that simple act of service is valuable in God's eyes. It will be remembered and it will be rewarded. That is how you should have treated this man, Jesus is saying. And I think verses like this, they're a great encouragement as well as a great rebuke. We can take encouragement from the fact that God values those simple and humble acts of service for fellow Christians, especially those that aren't seen by others. The setup and the pack up that no one else sees, the cooking that no one else sees, the cleaning that no one else sees, driving people home, the preparation to teach children the gospel that no one else sees, the prayer for others that no one hears. All of these things that no one sees, God sees. God sees and he values and he rewards on the last day. God cares about how we treat each other. And he sees even those small acts of love and service. This verse is a great encouragement to keep going with that this year, isn't it? But these verses are also a great rebuke for those times that we fail to do even those simple acts of service. Where we do not have the humility to humble ourselves and serve, but instead we're self-seeking. Brothers and sisters, God cares deeply about how we treat each other. It shows whether we have understood the gospel and what Jesus says here or not. The gospel brings us together as a body of Christ so that we can do that act of serving and loving each other. This is how the disciples should have treated this man. They should have welcomed and served him. But they did not. Jesus not only speaks about what they should have done, he goes on to speak about even more challenging words about what we are not to do as we treat each other. In contrast to the person who is rewarded for giving a cup of water to a disciple, Jesus says some of the most stark words. That must be one of those guys who wants us to get out of the way on the road. Jesus says some of the most stark words in the Bible here from verse 42 onwards. Have a look. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. Strong words from our Lord, aren't they? I often wonder, Jesus, aren't you meant to be meek and mild? No. These words are blunt and unashamed. And maybe you didn't come to church today to hear words like it. And as I was preparing this week, I didn't want to say words like this. But here they are. From the very lips of our Lord Jesus, it's better to drown at the bottom of the sea than to cause a brother or sister in Christ to fall into sin or fall away from Jesus. Jesus says this is serious. 
one part of our mission statement as a church is glorifying God by growing disciples. That's what Jesus is on about, and that's what we strive to be on about. But to cause the downfall of a brother or sister in Christ, isn't that basically the opposite of growing disciples? It's destroying disciples. And that is why Jesus is so against it. Jesus cares deeply about how his disciples treat each other. He will justly judge those who harm his children or cause them to fall away. Jesus goes on and says even more outlandish things. He says, if one part of your body causes you to sin, chop it off. Lop it off and throw it away because it's better to go into heaven without that limb than into hell with it. Now, in this context, he's speaking about sin in general, but he's also speaking about the particular sin of causing others to fall. I don't think Jesus literally means that we should cut off our limbs when we cause people to sin. I don't think he literally means that we can enter eternal life with missing limbs. Otherwise, the book of Acts would be full of dismembered disciples and limbs all over the place. But Jesus is saying that he cares deeply about how his people treat each other. He cares deeply and thinks that we should take extreme action to cut sin out of our lives. Jesus died for sin, and so his people shouldn't have anything to do with it. Jesus died so that his people might be brought together, and so to tear God's people apart, that's serious enough to deserve God's judgment and hell. Did you see it there in verse 43? This picture of hell that we're given, so stark, so frightening. Verse 43, the hell is the unquenchable fire. And in verse 48, hell is the place where the worms don't die and the fire is not quenched. This language comes from Isaiah 66, which we read before. And it's a picture of God's final judgment. It uses the image of a huge burning rubbish dump that was to the south of Jerusalem. And there was a valley where they threw all their rubbish they're dead animals, and even sometimes the bodies of dead criminals. It was a place where there was fire and rot and decay. And it was the closest image that God could give us to show us what hell will be like. And therefore, extreme action should be taken to remove sin. Sin that deserves hell. Sin, especially that sin of causing others to stumble and fall away from the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if true greatness is serving one another, then the best way to serve is to flee from sin and causing others to do the same. It's striving and working for our brothers and sisters' holiness, growing disciples, not destroying them. And so it's worth stopping and thinking for a bit at the beginning of 2016 and asking, were there ways in 2015 that I led others astray? That I need to stop for 2016? Have I led others to gossip? Have I led others to be lazy in their responsibilities or greedy with their wealth? Have I led others into drunkenness? Have I led others into sexual immorality with me? 
Jesus is saying here those sins deserve God's judgment and they need to be taken, extreme measures need to be taken to flee from them, to cut them out, not to flirt with the line. But then that's not all that Jesus has to say on this topic. Jesus finishes with two more reasons to take this seriously. Two more proverbs to encourage his disciples to strive for this true greatness, serving others. The first one is in verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is one of those strange sayings of Jesus, which at first doesn't really give away its meaning. But what we can figure out about it is this. First of all, he's talking about the future. He says, you will be salted with fire. He's speaking about the last day again, the day of judgment. And salt and fire, they were two things that were both used on temple sacrifices. You can see there in Leviticus 2 on your outline, some offerings, they were presented with salt and others with fire. So it seems that Jesus is saying one day, on the last day, Each person will be presented before God like a sacrifice and their works will be placed on his altar. And those works will be salted and burned and either they will be acceptable to God or they'll not. I think it's the same idea that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, On the last day each Christian's Christian's works will be tested by fire. And if your works were worthy, if they were made of costly stones and gold, they will survive and you will be rewarded. But if your works were lousy, they were made of wood or straw, they will be burned up and be useless. Yes, you will be saved, because we are saved by the grace of God through our faith alone. Yes, we will be given eternal life, but you will not be rewarded for those works which you could have been. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Why take this seriously? Why strive for true greatness? Because on the last day, our works will be tested. We will be like a sacrifice presented before God, and our works will either be burnt up, or they will stay and be rewarded. Jesus is saying, how you treat your fellow disciples, it matters now. They will be judged on the last day. Jesus wants us to be truly great, to be the servant of all. But then Jesus, picking up on a similar salt metaphor, says another more familiar proverb that we're used to. Have a look at verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Salt is great, isn't it? If I was given the choice to never eat sugar again or never eat salt again, I would never eat sugar again because salt is too good. It's so flavorsome. It is distinct. Nothing else tastes like it or as good as it. I could eat big salty pretzels for the rest of my life. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. As my followers, you're meant to be salty. You're meant to be distinct, flavorsome compared to the rest of the world. Not like the rest of the world. Jesus says, don't lose your distinctiveness as my people. Don't lose your saltiness because an unsalty pretzel is just a weird-shaped piece of bread. Jesus calls us to be distinct. And the particular way that he calls us in this passage is right at the end. He wants us to be distinctive by being at peace with one another. 
This is once again Jesus saying that true greatness is serving all. True greatness is striving for peace. Having the humility to swallow your pride and work for reconciliation instead of jealousy and fighting and gossip. To work for the good of each other, not against. So these are these powerful lessons that Jesus gives us on how to be truly great and what it means to be the servant of all. It means welcoming and accepting little ones who are, even if they are different to us. It means serving them humbly with simple and practical things. It means striving for their growth as disciples, not destroying them. It means being salty and distinct and at peace with each other because one day our works will be judged by our Lord Jesus. So how will you respond to these strong and challenging words of Jesus? What resolution will we come up with to put these into action? Instead of resolving to make pretzels, why don't we resolve to pursue true greatness in 2016? To grow in our love and service of our brothers and sisters in Christ. To have 2016 be a year of loving and serving, laying down our lives for each other. Putting off pride and putting on humility. Considering others better than ourselves and serving them for God's glory. Meeting together and committing to reading God's word together in order that others will be built up in him. Imagine at the end of 2016 if we as a church could say we did not break that resolution or even better, Jesus, you are the one who worked in us to grow us, to make us people who love and serve each other more. Lord Jesus, in 2016 you grew us as disciples who want to grow each other as fellow disciples. Let's pray for that now. God, our Father, we praise you because you give us the great privilege of being your children. We praise you that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, you have graciously adopted us into your family and given us eternal life. Such immeasurable blessing. Father, we pray that you would help us to reflect this great truth by living out the words of Jesus here, by striving for true greatness serving each other and humbly putting each other first. Please help us this year from destroying other disciples and causing each other to sin. Please grow us this year as disciples who want to grow each other in our walk in the Lord. Help us to be at peace and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Please, Lord, make us like the Lord Jesus, the one who came to serve, not to be served, and give his life for us. Please help us to live like him. In his name we pray. Amen.